Curse. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 21. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica. I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Mike Portnoy, one of the most respected, distinguished, and diverse rock drummers. In 1985, Mike and two of his classmates at the Berklee College of Music formed the band that would become Dream Theater, one of the most celebrated and acclaimed progressive rock bands in history earning a place on the heavier side of the genre's Mount Rushmore alongside progressive giants like Rush in the eyes of many fans. A songwriter, producer, and organizationally-minded musician with a vision for the big picture, Portnoy established himself as more than a drummer, while at the same time cementing a reputation as one of the best guys alive when it comes to his instrument, regularly topping readers' polls in Modern Drummer and Loudwire, and collecting awards at events like Metal Hammer's Golden Gods Awards. In addition to his work with Dream Theater from the band's formation till his departure 25 years later, Mike has recorded and or performed with Avenged Sevenfold, Twisted Sister, Adrenaline Mob, Faith's Warning, Overkill, and many others. He's currently a central core member of Metal Allegiance, alongside recent Speak and Destroy guests David Ellison and Alex Skolnick, and can be seen on the road through most of this year with Sons of Apollo, another supergroup of sorts. Mike is also, of course, a Metallica fan. He's been an outspoken supporter and advocate of his drummer comrade Lars Ulrich in particular, regularly saluting his particular musical sensibilities, showmanship, and stage presence, and his behind-the-scenes acumen and creative engineering that has been so crucial in developing and maintaining this band that we all love and the style and sound that has erupted around them for over 30 years. In 2002, Dream Theater surprised fans in Barcelona when they took the stage and ripped into the entire Master of Puppets album from start to finish, a trick they pulled again in Chicago and New York City, and a move that would help inspire Metallica to do the same thing with the same album just a few years later. Mike and I discussed that and many more Metallica-related topics in this episode. So here it is, my conversation with Mike Portnoy. This is Speak and Destroy. <laughs> I know that you saw Metallica for the first time in January of 85. How did you first discover the band even uh, prior to that? Well, it's funny because a friend of mine was a college DJ. It was around, I guess, 83. So I was probably, uh, I was still in high school, maybe a junior or a senior. And a friend of mine was a college DJ. And he got sent Kill 'Em All right after it came out. And I guess he was just unprepared for it. He just, <laughs> he didn't know how to handle it. So, um, you know, one day we were looking through each other's record collections and he was like, yo, have you heard this Metallica band? And and uh, and for some reason, I guess he lost his copy of Back in Black or something or scratched or broke or whatever. And he was like, yeah, man, can I I'll trade you your black back in black for this album. And well, I was like, I wanted to check it out. So he put it on and I was like, what the fuck? I had never heard anything that tight and heavy and fast. I mean, at that point. The fastest stuff was, uh, you know, except like Fast as a Shark had come out, I yeah. think, maybe the year before.
and uh, you know, obviously there was Motorhead, but Motorhead wasn't really. I mean, they had the song Overkill, which was fast, but other than that, um, you know, they were heavy and they were, you know, they had that that spirit, but they weren't really that fast and tight. And that was the thing about Kill 'Em All that struck me was like, even though it was really raw, uh, it was tight. The rhythms were so chunky. You know, when you heard like that middle breakdown and whiplash or, or some of the middle section of Four Horsemen, it was like, oh my God, man. It was like the sound I was looking for. You know, you were looking for the ultimate heavy sound and Kill 'Em All delivered it. So I immediately gave up my back in black <laughs> and took Kill 'Em <laughs> Kill 'em All home and and I just fell in love with that album. wasn't until um i guess i never got a chance to see them live until they rolled through it right after ride the lightning came out uh so they played january 85 at lamore uh and actually wasp closed the show i think they were flip-flopping but i think the mm -hmm. night i went wasp closed and armor saint opened um and at that point i had already gotten ride the lightning in fact uh, it's funny the, the very first place i ever drove to when i got my driver's license was to slip disc, slip disc records on Long Island because the day I got my license was the day that Ride the Lightning came out. So the first place I drove was to slip disc and I got Ride the Lightning and, and I loved it just as much as Kill Em All and couldn't wait to see them live and finally got to see them live in January 85. You know, one of my favorite things, uh, one of the most generous things um, from the Metallica side for us Metallica fans is the meticulous... Uh, note-taking and uh the historical archives that i think lars really headed up if you go to metallica's website you can not only find every show that they've ever played uh, right. since their first show which was 36 years ago this month um but you can you know the set list um i love that bill I, yeah i love that so i yeah. think uh that's one of the reasons i can relate so much to lars and mm -hmm. i always try to carry that into everything i did that meticulous detail with dates and set lists and, and man, I mean like these, you know, the box, the Lux box sets that came out this last year or so, I mean, it, it's the ultimate fan collection. And, and I love that Lars and James too have that deep level of, of, you know, fandom, you know, nuances and, and, and all the dates and, and, and the demos and the details. I love that stuff. Uh, absolutely. And I, yeah, it's funny. I'm looking at, January 25th, 1985, Lemoore, Brooklyn. There it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, right, the Lightning there. Tour, Wasp, Armored Saint, and then, yeah, and it's even got um, their set list, which, of course, um, at the time was, was really just the first two records. Yeah, and it was pretty static. I think they were pretty much playing the same set list most of those shows, I think. But, um, yeah, it was the first two albums, and it was amazing. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I remember everybody just not being into wasp you know i think metallica had come around and they pretty much took over the scene because i remember like around 83 84 
you know, I was still listening to Twisted Sister and, and Rat and Motley Crue and all that shit, you know. Um, but I was looking for something heavier. And, you know, I was listening to Priest and Maiden. Uh, but once Metallica came around, it's like that was it. I, I didn't want to listen to Priest anymore. I didn't want to listen to Maiden anymore. Uh, everybody's taste just completely shifted at that point. And, you know, suddenly, you know, Twisted Sister and Dio and Priest, you know, Priest doing uh, Defenders of the Faith, it just didn't cut it. You know, once you heard Kill Em All, <laughs> it ruined it ruined everything else that was out there. So seeing them with Wasp closing, I think just people didn't didn't care anymore. You know, they were they were ready to move on to the Metallica train and 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 move straight ahead into the thrash movement. I think that's a really important thing that you just pointed out that actually hasn't been discussed enough on this podcast before, which is that, you know, certainly, um, you know, right, right back to that story about Back in Black, of course, you're not taking anything away from Back in Black and its significance and its importance and how cool it is. But, uh, you know, those who weren't there at the time need to kind of understand right, the totally. context that we were experiencing kind of this new thrash movement at the time. Because I, you know, I often tell people the first concert that I ever went to that, you know, my mom didn't take me to um, was Dio, Megadeth and Sabotage. And a lot of times people hear that and they go, oh, wow, Dio was your first concert. And like, hey, look, I love Dio. You know, I'm a massive fan. I, I would say that I even like Dio Sabbath as much as Ozzy Sabbath in some ways more. But with that being said, at the time in 1988, I didn't give a shit about Dio. Right. I wasn't totally. there for Dio. I was. I went to see Megadeth, and I got there and found out Sabotage canceled that night. And I was like, "Cool, Megadeth's playing sooner," <laughs> you know. And uh, my first Metallica show was the Monsters of Rock tour, and I've said this on the podcast before. While I would certainly love to see the Scorpions now, or you know, maybe even that classic lineup of Dokken or or Van Hagar. At the time, my buddy and I, I went in Metallica no, shirts. We were... We stood we with our, yeah, yeah. We stood with our middle fingers during all of Kingdom Come, watched yeah. Metallica, and we left. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, we didn't even stay once, for those three bands. Yeah. Once you got on board with Metallica, and then came Megadeth and Anthrax and Slayer and Flotsam and Jetsam and Overkill and you know uh, Exodus. You know, once that movement came around, that Metallica sparked, everything else paled in comparison. And the same way that Metallica blew Wasp off the stage that night at Lemoore in '85. The same thing held true a couple of years later when they were opening for Ozzy in arenas. Yeah. I think it was the changing of the guard. I remember seeing them on the Master Puppets tour opening for Ozzy. And at that point, everybody was, they were just over Ozzy and they were ready for the new regime. It, it became very tribal, you know, and it was like, well, I'm not, I'm not into that because I'm into this, you know. And yeah. I'm, certainly as um, more and more subgenres have developed and extreme music and elsewhere since, and of course, as you know, you get older and everything, it's all that much more fun to be a, a right. consumer, so to speak, of everything and immerse yourself in all this different great music. But yeah, it's but different for a time, now than it was then. Yeah, at the time, it was like you were definitely like, "This is my thing. It belongs to us. This is our this totally. is our group. This is what we're into." Yeah, totally. You know, you of course um, wrote a little bit about. Uh, I think I think it was when the Master of Puppets box set came out, um, and uh, introducing. The other guys in Dream Theater, even to Metallica, is that right? Right, yeah. Because uh, I went to Berkeley in uh, September of '85, so you know, like I just mentioned, '83, '84, beginning of '85, I was submersed in uh, 
this thrash movement, you know, Metallica was leading the charge, you know, they were obviously, you know, the, the kings of it, but I was still listening to all the other bands I, I just named, that whole thrash movement. I was also into the New York hard, hardcore scene, listening to like Cro-Mags and Agnostic Front and Crumb Suckers and Leeway and Ludacrist. So by the time I went to Berkeley, uh, you know, I had I had both of those scenes were really a big part of what I was listening to at that period. But when I went to Berkeley, you know, I, I met these other guys that were like real rush heads and, and, you know, they liked rush and yes. And, and, um, maiden. And obviously I had that as well. So when we put together dream theater, you know, we had the common ground of rush maiden priest, uh, stuff like that. But they, those guys didn't go beyond like maiden and priest or Sabbath. That was the only metal they really knew. So I introduced them, uh, you know, not only to Metallica, but to all the bands I just named, Anthrax and S.O.D. and Megadeth. And, you know, those guys hadn't heard any of that stuff until then. And I remember turning them on to a lot of this stuff. And then I remember the day Master of Puppets came out, uh, I guess in, in 86. I remember taking the, the T, which is the train in Boston. I remember taking the T to, uh, what was the record store there? Um, uh, Newberry Comics in Boston. Yeah, right? exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I went and got Master of Puppets the day it came out. And it was obviously on vinyl. I don't think they were making CDs yet. And I remember bringing the vinyl back to my room at Berkeley and playing it for John Petrucci and John Myung. And, you know, they didn't really know Metallica yet. And uh, I turned them on to that album. And then obviously, you know, they, they got bit by the bug, too. They didn't go deep like I did with all the other bands, but they definitely appreciated Metallica. What a what a fly on the wall moment for Dream Theater fans to imagine the three of you <laughs> sitting yeah. there well, at I, Berkeley it was, listening it was, to Master it was like of I was giving them, I was giving them a lesson in metal. And then from there, you know, <laughs> I turned them on to S.O.D. and some other stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I you know, I have a couple moments like that. I remember the day that Cliff died. Mm. Uh later that year and i remember those guys were at my house we were on we were home for christmas break or something or maybe it was still summer break and berkeley hadn't resumed oh no no we we had left berkeley at that point so we were home and they were at my house and we heard that cliff died and i remember playing uh orion on you know the vinyl and uh crying i remember we were sitting there listening to it with the with the lights turned down and we just heard that Cliff died and, and put that on. And it, it just, man, it moved me big time. I remember that night very, very clearly. And it speaks volumes of the power of, of not only this band's music, but the their overall impact with the style, attitude, vibe, the aesthetic, um, everything about the whole package that we would feel that um, intimately connected to figures like that. You know, and, and of course, sadly, we've, you know, in, in the metal community since then experienced um, a number of tragedies and, and, and losses. Uh, but it's at that time, it was pretty much, you know, Randy Rhodes had died in right. tragic in 82, I think. And then, you know, four years later was Cliff. But, you know, obviously, we didn't have internet back then. So I remember like, hearing it on the radio or something. But you know, we didn't have internet. So the only way you can get your metal or rock news was, um, you know, maybe on radio and, and very few radio stations cared about heavy metal back then. I remember WSOU by me in New York played it. But um, and then you basically had to wait till the magazines came out. I mean, Kerrang! was weekly. So pretty much I was buying Kerrang! every week because that was the only way to get weekly news. You know, mm -hmm. magazines uh, like Circus or Hit Parade or, you know, they were starting to dabble in bands like Metallica. But even that was every month. Uh, and usually the news was old by the time you got it. So it was it was a weird time, you know, like that's why I think there was a, such a great underground scene in the mid 
80s is because we didn't have the internet. And I remember tape trading with people. And, you know, that's how I got to know like Barney from Napalm Death or, or the guys from Watchtower. It was because we were sending tapes to each other back then. Yeah. And, you know, that was a big part of how Metallica broke and, and Exodus and all those early bands, you know, that we didn't have the internet back then. So, yeah. So when, when news of, of Cliff dying came, it was, you know, we didn't know much. Uh, you know, the guys obviously from Anthrax were there and they know what happened. But beyond that, you know, all, all of us in the metal community were kind of, you know, anxiously waiting for the news of what happened. And pretty much Kerrang! was the only outlet at that point. Yeah. And like you said, the only outlet that was going to be timely and, and that would uh, also have the consideration and care to uh, to cover it as more than just a couple right. of sentences. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's interesting what you're what you're saying about the the tape trading movement, which of course was so important to Metallica and the thrash scene in general, and and how that even continued um, in the late '80s and early '90s. You know, uh, one of my my oldest and very good friend, Dwid from the band Integrity, we met um, after he sent me Integrity's demo in response to a classified ad I'd put in MRR fanzine. Mm. You yeah, know, and I and I have. Exactly. Uh, some very close friends that I, I grew up with in Indiana who um, a lot of our friendships developed literally through the classified section of, of that fanzine. Yep. And um, yeah, there was something to be said for really having to seek out the other members of your tribe and to share information with one another and uh, trade these stories and secrets. And, and yeah, know, I mean, luckily, luckily I grew up in on Long Island, New York. So we had uh, Lamore, Brooklyn, and we had Sundance on Long Island, which is so, so all the metal bands came through there. And I saw everybody from Exodus to Testament to Overkill. They all went through all those clubs back in 84, 85, 86. And that's how we found our tribe. You know, we, we luckily had this common ground of Lemoore or Sundance where we would go every weekend and hang out with all the other metalheads and all the thrash guys. And so even though we didn't have the internet, we, we did have Lemoore and Sundance on you know, every weekend. And that was a big part of the scene as well. Was there a sense as you were getting into that scene? Was there ever any kind of, uh, cause you know, of course we, we think a lot about Bay area thrash and of course, you know, Slayer, Megadeth and, and Metallica all having a tie to LA. Um, right. but then of course being, you know, the whole Bay area scene and all that. Um, then we think about Anthrax in New York and of course, you know, real fans know about Overkill and some of these other bands, but was there ever a sense that there was any kind of, distance or differentiation between the east coast and the west coast and at that time in that scene was it were there stylistic differences and there were definitely two different scenes um i think the new york scene was more rooted in hardcore like i mentioned earlier so bands like uh chromags and leeway and ludicrist and crumb suckers agnostic front they were all coming out of new york and i think that's you know how anthrax ended up doing sod was a result of their that influence on them. And then, of course, Overkill was like the house band at L'Amour. So, I mean, I, I remember seeing Anthrax and Overkill at L'Amour all the time. You know, it wasn't like they would just roll through every six to eight months like Megadeth, Megadeth or the bands from the West Coast would. You know, there was a kind of a New York scene, and these bands were playing L'Amour all the time. Even my wife, Marlene, she was in a band called Mean Streak. They were like an all-girl thrash band at the time, and I remember seeing them open for, for Overkill and Anthrax and, uh, and Motorhead and all those bands. But it was definitely a scene. Uh, so all those bands I just listed were kind of the New York scene. Mm -hmm. And it's weird. I was a huge part of that scene just as a fan and hanging around. <laughs> but here I was like in this this prog metal band. You know, I still yeah. loved I still yeah. loved progressive music and that influence and everything I was doing with Dream Theater was also, 
you know, important to me, but I was always this thrash metal, you know, New York hardcore fan that was part of that scene and going to Lemoore or Sundance every weekend. That was, those were my people. I wasn't hanging out with the guys in dream theater on the weekends. I was really hanging out with all these other guys that were part of, you know, these scenes. You make such a great point about the the hardcore influence and hardcore in itself being a subgenre where for a lot of punk people, it was too metal. And then, right. you know, thrash metal for a lot of traditional metal people, it was too street, which was where the hardcore influence was coming. Um, well, there was a, there was a point where when SOD came out and I think they were trying to merge it and, you know, Scott Ian still had long hair and I know he would like go hang out at CBGB's and get into fights with the skinheads. So like, you know, I, I, I was part of the long haired scene. Uh, but I had a lot of friends that were skinheads and going to CBGBs. And there was kind of this line in the sand that we were trying to make go away. And I think it did in a certain respect, but it was a little harder. I think everybody really held their ground in the worlds that they were a part of. It, it was a time and a place for sure, even as that crossover thing was happening. That was relatively brief. And it, it really wasn't until, I would argue, the late 90s where... Um, you know, bands like Hatebreed and Shadows Fall. And I certainly bands, I mean, yeah. you know, Hatebreed have been around for a I long think, time. I think Biohazard did a good job. Uh, they were kind of a New York hardcore band, but they were playing metal. They were kind of like the what Suicidal Tendencies was doing. Suicidal started hardcore and got metal. And I think Biohazard was kind of the same for the East Coast. Yeah, I, w I was thinking more in terms of hardcore bands where it became acceptable to have like metal looking guys in your band. Right. <laughs> you right. know what totally. I mean? Like, um, yeah, the idea, like, if you had a long hair in your band and you were a hardcore band, it was just, it, it was incongruous. And then there was a point right. somewhere where it turned where it became acceptable and then it became even sort of cred and kind of sought after, you know, like, yeah, totally. well, these guys are more legit. They've got a couple, like, full-on metal dudes in here. Right. Um, so what, what was your first opportunity to meet any of those guys? You know, I don't... Uh... I was thinking about this. I don't think I got to really meet any of them till much later because then they blew up. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, once the Black Album came out, they were untouchable. So unless I was in a metal band that was going to tour with them, I really had no direct contact with them. You know, I became friends with the Anthrax guys and the Megadeth guys and, uh, you know, all the Pantera guys, th those were the guys I became friends with and they were contemporaries because they were accessible. They would play Roseland in New York and we'd all hang out and drink together. Whereas Metallica, <laughs> they were untouchable. You know, they had grown to suddenly be like a stadium band. So I didn't get to personally know them uh, or more, most specifically Lars until the early 2000s. Um, we started doing some things together in the drum world uh, I think the first time I met him was 2001, maybe, like right after Jason left the band. And me and him did a signing together for Tama because both of our signature snares were being released at the same time. Um, so there was a, you know, there was a, a huge period between uh, And Justice for All and Metall the Black Album and the two Load albums that I still didn't really know them. I was just a fan. I was kind of an outsider in this prog band, you know. Um, and during that period, I mean, I, I saw, I still love them on Injustice for All. I remember when the one video came out, it was such a big deal because they hadn't made any videos yet. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people today don't realize that or don't realize that they went their three massive first albums. They never did a video for any of those songs. Nope. So they were all, they, you know, they were nowhere to be found on Headbangers Ball. And, and even or when like they that. did finally make a video, it was still in a way that was disruptive 
and contrarian because yeah. they said, well, if we're going to make a video, not only is it going to be, you know, the darkest and most sort of psychologically fucked up thing we can imagine, it's going to have dialogue cut in, right. in you know. And at the yeah. time, like MTV sometimes would have videos that would have these music free intros that they would show sometimes and eventually kind right. of lop it off and just play the music portion. And Metallica kind of forced it, the issue by um, interspersing all these like sound, that was, full sound. That clips. was like the thriller of metal, you know, the way the thriller <laughs> started with this whole movie. And then, yeah. you know, this, and that was the way it was. One was like this eight minute video uh, with all this movie footage intercut uh, and dialogue. And, and uh, but everybody conformed to them because at that point they were already huge and they had never made a video. And then that opened up the whole video world for them and just took them to the next level and set them up for the Black Album. I need help. I'm in terrible trouble and I need help. Don't you remember when you were little? How you and Bill Harper used to bring a wire between the two houses so you could telegraph to each other? You'll remember the Morse code. Darkness imprisoning me. Yeah, and it, it, it's, I mean, you know, when you talk about the mainstream coming to you versus you going to the mainstream, uh, there are a few greater examples than that particular moment in their career. As you just described it, it was, by the time they made a video, it wasn't, oh, we're making a video in hopes that MTV will play it. We're making a video knowing that MTV has to play it. Exactly. <laughs> we can and make they were the only band we want. that hadn't made a video. You know, Megadeth had had three or four videos and... Uh, you know, Anthrax had Madhouse and, you know, everybody had made videos except for the biggest band of the movement. But I wanted to get into, you know, one thing that comes up on the podcast a lot, of course, is uh, there are different fans, and I would use air quotes in some cases, I suppose, um, the kind of, you know, Metallica is a band where people drop off at different points, um, even mm. if they ultimately come back and they say, well, this album brought me back or this era brought me back. And uh, it seems like uh, just about everyone I've had on and, um, you know, the organic friend conversations that I've had for so many years now that eventually uh, inspired this podcast and, and, you know, found a home here. Um, you know, I, I know for some guys I grew up with, even And Justice for All was that moment where it was like, oh, well, the album's not very fast or, um, mm -hmm. you know, they were, you know, I remember couple guys at my metal lunch table saying that Dyer's Eve was the only good song. And, um, and I, you know, I love the record and I've continued to love it. And then of course the black album is, is often controversial. Um, right. I personally, as a fan, don't find that there's anything that's outright indefensible. Um, there's certainly a couple of records that I don't listen to. <laughs> I, 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 I have a definite specific drop off and drop back in point. I, I, I go mean, for it. Let me, I, I let do. Me hear it. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I always stuck by them. I always kind of casually listened to them, but I, they lost me in the '90s, to be honest. I, I loved "And Justice for All" because it was so progressive. There was there was so many time signatures, and and uh, the songs were long. So I absolutely loved that album. And, and before Pro Tools, so that means somebody really, like not only did they Hello. make their way through all those performances, but also somebody really had to sit there with like the you know the straight razor and cut that yeah. tape or whatever you know. Or, or yeah. they they or wow they actually played it <laughs> mm -hmm. they were a great fucking live band and yeah. they were tuned in and and you know they were they were up and rocking it but uh i loved injustice for all because i was in a prog band myself and that to me was their prog metal album their most prog metal album 
But then uh, the Black Album came out, and I remember I remembered hating it. I really did. It was so polished and so straight ahead, and I really didn't like it when it came out. And I don't think I realized how much I loved the Black Album until Load and Reload came out. <laughs> then I realized that the Black Album was actually a great album. And now, you know, in, in hindsight, of course, the Black Album is an, it's a masterpiece. It was just at the time... Uh, I still wanted my stuff fast, heavy, and progressive. Um, but now, obviously, in retrospect, you can't you can't deny that album, and it's you know it's the biggest selling metal album of all time, probably. So, but uh, that's when I started to fall off, and I, I I always saw them when they came through. I always kept a, an eye on what they were doing and checked out the new albums, but I really did not like Load and Reload. I mean, and it wasn't just them. I think all the metal bands in the nineties were just at their worst. I think Pantera, Pantera, Machine Head and Sepultura were the only bands that kept metal alive in the nineties. Everybody else, my least favorite bands of, the, of their entire catalogs were always in the late nineties. And that was the same for Metallica, but it was the same for Megadeth. It was the same for Queensryche. It was the same for Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. It was just a tough time for metal, but uh, Load and Reload to me, had nothing to do with metal. I was like, man, they should change their name to Rocktalica. These are not metal albums. You know, they were just kind of bluesy rock albums. Um, so I wasn't a fan, to be honest. And to, I, I, I still am not, to be honest. It wasn't until, uh, you know, they did the Garage Days stuff, which was cool. I didn't like the S&M stuff with the orchestra. It wasn't until St. Anger that I was like, holy shit, this is fucking awesome. And of course, I know that that's a, a controversial album and it's got, it's major flaws. I mean, the production is horrible and a lot of the vocal melodies are unlistenable, but I appreciated that they were at least coming back to the riffs and the long songs. And there was a, a spirit there that I could appreciate even with all the flaws that the album had. And that was the album that they, that they got me totally back on board with. Yeah. You know what, what's interesting. And that, that already is in and of itself a unique take um, versus some of the other ones. Cause yeah, of course the, Conventional wisdom with a lot of fans is that the 90s were, were a dark period and that uh, San Anger is, you know, all but unlistenable. Um, I, you know, found myself throughout the 90s in the uh, Defend Metallica camp. Um, mm. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, Load definitely took a while for me to get into. I remember being really turned off by the first track, Ain't My Bitch, and really not going back to the record for like a few months Mm -hmm. um and then a couple of the singles sort of drew me back in and then I, I i came around to it and um you know once certain shocks of you know here's a record called load with uh you know some fine art fancy yeah, and they logo, cut their hair and they were wearing makeup over, yeah, all of that all of that stuff right i i was always kind of of two minds about it like i understood the rejection of that by certain elements of the metal community and you and I both know, and we, I don't want to waste time on the podcast going down the rabbit hole of the, the, the most extreme, uh, no pun intended, end of the <laughs> critical end of, of metal fandom that's like any other fandom, comic book, movies, sports, whatever. Um, but I mean, like the legitimate c gripes of some Metallica fans who felt that they had been somehow burned by their favorite band. I understood that, but by the same turn, I also understood that myself as a music fan that I was into all sorts of things. You know, Lars was really into Oasis in the 90s. So was I, right. <laughs> you know, that's still one of my favorite bands, you know. You um, know, it's weird because I, I, I agree with that philosophy and I'm definitely that type of person. I, I love 
you know, I love Oasis too. I love jellyfish. I love all kinds of stuff. It doesn't have to be heavy, but for some reason, I still didn't like those albums. I, I don't think it was a style thing. I think it was a song thing. I think those songs just don't do it for me. Just of, of course, just my personal take. Yeah, yeah. No, and I'm for me, I don't think it was a style thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm an open. I'm a, the most open-minded fan you'll ever meet. But I, I just, I couldn't get on board with it in the '90s. It's interesting because you mentioned that you know it, it is polished, it is bluesy. Um, I felt like in that period, musically. You know, they were really, uh, I mean, Metallica has always been an entity defined by its uncompromising determination to do whatever the fuck they want. You know, like it's always um, our rules, you know, take it or leave it. And I think people saw the 90s as a a period of compromise, whereas I I saw and continue to see it the opposite way, where I, I feel like the safer thing to do would have been to kind of stay the course in a predictable way. And that they were in, in fact being as true to themselves as always, because at the time they were listening to Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and they had gone back to Thin Lizzy and you know what I mean? Like that was where their heads were at at the time. And they, and they were, and they, yeah, they, they were kind of dressing like millionaires that flew on private jets. Cause they right. were millionaires that flew on private jets. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, so I got that in that in that sense, and I think in all you know. After we're done with the podcast, at some point I'll hit you with my uh, <laughs> my uh, best of load and reload uh, playlist that tries to pare it down. Uh, it ain't gonna work. It ain't gonna work. I, it, it <laughs> it's been tried. As we were sitting here, it just dawned on me the same way that Metallica ruined Judas Priest and Twisted Sister and Ozzy back in in '84. I think Pantera ruined Metallica for me in 1994, 95, 96. I was on the Pantera train at that point. And I think Pantera, they were carrying the flag. They had that spirit, that that metal thrash spirit um, that everybody was getting away from. They were the only ones that were delivering it. And it just dawned on me now. I think, I think when Metallica put out Load, I looked at that album the same way I looked at um, you know, I, I would compare that to Far Beyond Driven or Fulgur Display of Power mm. the same way that when Kill 'Em All came out, I was comparing that to, you know, uh, Defenders of the Faith or whatever. I, I, I think I was just I, I needed my metal band and Metallica was no longer my metal band in 96. You know, you make a really great point that I think is, is very true for a lot of fans. And, you know, I had uh, Rex on the pro- podcast uh, a few episodes ago. And he was talking about how when the Black Album came out, there was a sense within Pantera of like, oh, this is great for us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like just open, it just cleared the way for exactly. them. Exactly. It just provides a nice wide opening for what we're doing over here. And people are going to be hungry for it. Just so, but, you know, by coincidence, yeah. serendipity. Um, so, yeah. I, and I also think it's important what you said. I, I love your point of view on San Anger because that for me is a record you know, I go back to songs from Load and Reload uh, even today, and I enjoy certain of those songs when they make their way into the set list from time to time. Um, St. Anger's record for me that um, I don't ever find myself going back to. Uh, well, you know what I, I, I actually love is the the version that was on the bonus disc. They did a DVD mm-hmm. of them performing the entire St. Anger album with Rob on bass. Was it Rob yeah. on bass? Yeah, it was Bob Rob on bass. It was like the it was Rob uh, on bass, it was like and rehearsing it for tour. Had, yeah, and it had a real raw, de- you know, raw mix to it. Whereas the you know the the final mix on the album is just so 
weird and abstract. So I find that is my favorite version of Saint Anger is that bonus disc, you know, uh, rehearsal DVD. Yeah. I think it makes yeah. that album a lot easier to swallow. It's funny. I actually uh, find myself listening to the rock band guitar hero whatever master of death magnetic more than right the, yeah, <laughs> I have for that the too. same reason because it's just a little bit a little bit uh yeah there's an acoustic version of the song all within my hands that the band did at one of the bridge school benefits that i think really brings that song to life i mean there's saint anger has a lot of great ideas that are in there i mean there's some good metallica buried in there i just you know my my misgivings about it are the same as, as everyone's you know obviously the sound but and, and also just sort of the the lack of uh editorial control um from a, from a songwriting perspective um, no there's no question it's it's an incredibly weird album i mean as much as i liked a lot of those elements of what they were going for i also remember sitting we were dream theater was making the train of thought album at that time and we had just done the whole master of puppets album and put that out mm-hmm and I remember while we were making the Train of Thought album, St. Anger came out. I remember sitting in my car outside the studio and I called John Petrucci into my car to play him some of the songs. And it was like, I, I can't remember, maybe like the middle of like Invisible Kid or Dirty Window, like with this weird middle section with just screaming and moaning and James' vocals are like, oh, I'm plugging for it What is going on? So, and the, the you know the sound of the snare drum. So, as much as I appreciated that album and it got me back because of the spirit and the intention, and I really got that. I mean, there's no question. There's some really hard to listen to stuff on that album. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, there were moments where I was like, "Oh my god, what are they fucking thinking?" But then there were other moments like, "Oh man, I this is fucking great." You know, it was a really mixed mixed album for me. I remember I got to spend some time with uh, Steve Albini once years ago and. Something he said to me was, uh, he's like, you know, they made a three and a half hour documentary about the making of that album and nowhere once do they talk about the fucked up snare drum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, and of course, as a fan, I, I you know, and, and understanding the conditions in which that record were made, it, it's importance. And it's, um, you know, the fact that they built such a catalog that's so worthy of discussion and that as, as fans, we can all have our different, um, experiences with it and the, the stuff we connect to more and, and less that's that's the incredible thing about metallica though as much as they are the biggest metal band of all time and they've made some of the i mean the black album and master of puppets and kill em all i mean these are the greatest metal albums of all time but they've also had such incredible misses as well it's crazy like never has the such a huge huge also had so many like, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if we're going chronologically and we're going to get to Lulu, but oh my God. I mean, the fact that they made an album like that or what they did was saying St. Anger or in my opinion, the load and reload album. So they haven't been, um, it's, they're not invincible. You know, they, they, they're not like the Beatles where everything they touched was perfect and classic and, and is gold. You know, they've had these missteps as well, but it just never seemed to stop them. Well, I love that they, everything's always ambitious and a hundred percent commitment, you know? So if right. they're, if they're going to fail, they're going to fail on a spectacular level in a spectacular fashion, which is always going to be more exciting to me than being safe. 
and know. no matter how many fails they've had, they, they, nothing ever knocked them off the, the pedestal. They, they, they were, are, and always will be the biggest metal band of all time. Indeed. Um, well, what I actually want to talk to you about, uh, getting back a little bit, uh, you know, you mentioned 2001 um, and, and getting to meet Lars for the first time. Uh, that is, interest, interestingly, you know, I mentioned they have all their shows listed on their site. That is the only year um, since the band started playing shows that um, they didn't play any shows. It was the wow, only year so in their nice. history that there wasn't a single show. Tell me a little bit about that experience, you know, kind of meeting him for the first I mean, what a weird time to <laughs> to get acquainted, you know. I specifically remember him joking, like, uh, the minute the minute I met him, we were put into a private room at the Tama booth. It was at the NAM show, and like I said, we were mm -hmm. introducing both of our snares. And, uh, and he and I were both brought into his back room. And I think Jace, they had just announced that Jason had left the band like a week or two earlier. And, uh, and so I remember just getting in the room and like, Hey man, how you doing? And the first thing he said was like, I've, I've had a better, I've had better months, you know, <laughs> he, you know, he was right, right. Coming off the Jason thing. And, um, and, uh, I, but he was in good spirits. And I, I often tell this story. I guess I should tell it here. If I'm going to tell it anywhere, this Please. is the right place to tell it. Yeah. But uh, I learned a huge lesson from him that day. And that was the first time I had really hung out with him. And we were doing this signing together. And, um, you know, here, here, here comes the drummer in the biggest metal band in the world. And I figured we'd be doing the signing and he wouldn't even be looking up. He would just be signing autographs like a, like a conveyor belt. Um, and he was the complete opposite. He inspired me and taught me such a lesson that day that no matter how big you are, no matter how famous you are, you still got to always be there for your fans. And I was blown away by each and every person on that line. He would shake their hand. He would look them in the eye. He'd be like, hey, man, how are you? Where are you from? How are you doing? What do you, you know, he was asking them questions and he was incredible like that and i was blown away because i've done signings with other drummers or other musicians that are in nobody bands that have sold you know <laughs> one millionth of what metallica Met mm -hmm. metallica sells and they won't even look up and they won't even give the fans the time of day and the fact that lars was like that which with each and every person taught me a huge lesson that day it was really inspiring for me you know i've, I've always said you know as somebody who um in my profession you know i've uh, interviewed a lot of people in the film world and tv world and so on and when people ask you know who's an asshole or who's great or whatever i say you know if there's any sort of general broad brush that i can paint uh that community with i will i always say the bigger they are the cooler they are mm. and it, it I, I think what i attribute that to is you know if you're Tom Cruise or, uh, you know, Julia Roberts or something. What do you have to prove to me when I walk in the room? You know, mm. they're, they're comfortable in their own skin. They're so they, so they, they suddenly kind of take it more of an interest in you and they're, um, they're relaxed and chill and it, and it's kind it's of, the, true. yeah, it's the C and D list people that, um, you know, show up with the, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I tell this story among friends, but, um, I worked on a show for Marvel. I was a, the writer on a, a talk show for Marvel a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of guests that came through, like we were taping a lot of episodes at a time. So there were multiple guests coming through. And, you know, we had uh, musicians like Method Man and um, a lot of comedians like Ron Funches, Paul Shear, Paul F. Tompkins, uh, you know, different actors, uh, you know, Clark Gregg, who played Agent Coulson in the Marvel movies and, and whatever. The only guest 
who came with an entourage and was the most sort of complicated person to mm. deal with was a 20 year old vine star mm. <laughs> remember wow. vine rest in peace yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and that was he had he had the mo- you know clark Gregg like showed up in his little mini cooper you know by himself right you know method man had nobody with him he had a publicist that showed up after his interview was over and she was super chill she was like you know seemed like yeah, his you, aunt or something and, it's a good uh, lesson man yeah exactly i mean not only lars i mean lars is that that was a great example for me but you know what you mentioned it the biggest ones in the world I, probably the only the only other time i had an experience like this was when i met paul mccartney and, and paul wow. mccartney is arguably arguably the most famous musician of all time in the entire world absolutely and he and he was like that he stood there with me and my daughter and engaged us in conversation for 15 minutes and and I would have been happy with a handshake and nice to meet you, <laughs> Sir Paul. And that would have been the end of it. But no, he stood there with me for a good 10, 15 minutes of conversation. And here, and that was Paul freaking McCartney. So the Lars, wow. the Lars story and example was, was a great inspiration and a lesson for me. And, and then, uh, you know, experiencing it again with somebody like Paul McCartney was just another perfect example of what you're saying. Oh, so great. So, and, and, and wow. I mean, and cheers to that <laughs> McCartney moment. That's yeah. legendary. Um, so yeah, so take me then uh, into the following year in 2002. Where did the idea come from to uh, cover Master of Puppets from start to finish? Um, tell me a little bit about those shows. And then, of course, the uh, one of the many exciting things about it, uh, what it led to within the Metallica camp. Well, um, I had this idea of, from now on, whenever Dream Theater was booked to do two night stands, uh, to do a cover album at the second show. It was an idea that I pretty much stole from Fish because Fish used to do that for their Halloween shows and they had covered uh, the White Album and they had covered, um, uh, what else at that point? Maybe a, a, a Talking Heads album. I, I can't recall, but in, in, in any case, I, I had the idea of uh, covering the entire album from start to finish. I thought it was just a, a brilliant idea that Fish was doing for their Halloween shows. Uh, but the only way I could kind of justify doing something like that was a two-night stand. So I kind of created this self-imposed uh, rule from that point on. Anytime Dream Theater was doing a two-night stand, we were going to cover an album in its entirety at the second show. Uh, why I chose Master of Puppets for the first one, I don't know. I, it just felt like the, a right album to pay tribute to. I think every, everybody would have expected us to do a Rush album uh, or maybe a Queensryche or an Iron Maiden album. Right. Something like Metall- right on the nose. <laughs> but but yeah. Metallica was, and they were also in a real down period. You know, this, this was February, 2002. And like you said, you know, they were, they weren't on, on tour. They weren't, you know, they, they, in my eyes were coming off the load and reload albums, which I didn't really like anymore. And I kind of wanted to just bring attention to how fucking great, that album is master of puppets and and it just seemed like around 2002 they weren't getting that kind of uh, respect or at least within the prog community that i was a part of so it just felt like a really cool left turn for a, a progressive metal band to tackle and it feel, felt like the right time like give them their their due and the respect that they deserve and you know pay tribute to it at that point i guess it was um you know maybe 15 years old um Anyway, nobody knew at that second show in Barcelona that we were going to do a covers album because uh, I had made that decision. And, and But up until that point, nobody knew that that was the plan. So we just came out the second set of the second show 
and played battery. And I think most people probably thought that was just going to be a one-off cover. <laughs> and then, and then we kicked into master of puppets and then we kicked into the thing that should not be by the time we got to the third and fourth song, people caught on what, as to what was going on and that we were going to do the whole album and, and they were freaking out. And uh, the word got out the next day that we had done it. So suddenly now everybody started looking at our tour dates to see when the next two night stand was going to be. And and also, I think it's important to point out here that in 2002, uh, you know, by no means was it as uh, as commonplace as it is by 2018 for bands to do entire records. And and it still isn't common for, uh, you know, a band of, of... dream theater stature to do an entire record of no, a different I, I, band i knew know. of no other bands other than fish and you know i i specifically got the idea from fish but as far as i knew they were the only other band that had done that at that point even bands bands weren't even doing their own albums right much less covers and it's funny because uh lars told me the next year or whenever um they ended up doing all of master puppets in its entirety i think the following year and he he admitted to me that it was us doing it that sparked the idea in his head, which That's was so cool. you know pretty amazing. But yeah, so you know the day the, the next day after this Barcelona show, um, you know word got out, and a few days later I got a phone call from Lars. And he left a voicemail uh, on my machine, just you know blown away that we had done it and uh, that just the whole idea and the concept. And he was just really appreciative of the. Uh, you know, the respect that we were showing and the tribute we were paying. And, um, you know, from that point on, he and I stayed in touch through the years on and off and crossed paths a lot. You know, we became friends. But uh, at that early point, it was pretty amazing to get that phone call and, you know, acknowledgement from him. It was really cool. Of course. And I also think about, you know, as a fan of um, both of you, um, when you were sitting on, on that metal show a few years ago and Lars was the guest and there was oh, this yeah, right. great, great little moment where, you know, you're playing out to break and you're just riffing, you know, just being Mike Portnoy <laughs> on the drums. And, uh, and Lars is just like the look on his face. Like he's just, um, so much, uh, respect and admiration yeah. for your playing. And, and so then cool. it, as it cuts to commercial year, I'm saying in the background, I quit. Yeah. I'll tell you what, he's, he's such a fucking gracious guy. And, you know, I'll give you another Lars story. I mean, um, I, I, I can't tell you how much respect I have for the guy. Uh, forget about drumming. Cause that's all other conversation. I'll, I have his back with that all the time, but I'm just going to talk about the gracious person he is. And, and yes, um, cause you've also, you've spoken about his drumming in the press before. And you've also talked about sort of, uh, and this is something I always would talk about with friends as a fan uh, you know the his the massive significance of the guy to the band in general and that entire movement that spawned around the band and so many other bands as a result. Um, you know, down and people go, okay, well, yeah, I know he does some business, and it's like it's not even just business; it's arranging, it's yeah, um, imagery, everything. it's tour packages, it's set lists, absolutely, it's fan Look clubs. Look at those, those those 30th anniversary shows, those yes. four nights where they didn't repeat a single song other than the encore. I mean, the work and time that went into into that, 
I give him all credit for that, but I really you 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 know that a lot of that stuff is stemming from Lars. He's just do, always yeah. doing, and nobody the worked harder stuff. than him because he was the only guy who never got up. <laughs> yeah, I get it because that was the way I always was with Dream Theater. I was exactly. always that guy. Well, that's where I was going too. Is that you're you're very much that same uh, type of persona in uh, many of the projects that you've, uh, you know, kind of almost drummer frontman, um, you know. A lot of that's from Lars. But the, 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 the story I wanted to tell, just to once again point out how gracious he yes, is. Yes, let's do gracious, um, Lars. <laughs> I, uh, I, I I'm, took my uh, kids to see Metallica for the first time on the Death Magnetic Tour. So it was around 2009. So my kids are around 10 years old or, or whatever. And uh, Max, my son, was just starting to play drums. And he really loved the Death Magnetic album. And he was just really learning about Metallica for the first time. I was really excited to go see his first Metallica show. And uh, just to, as a great example, Lars set me up with tickets for, for me and my family. And uh, Chris Jericho joined us as well. So it was me, Chris, and my kids. And um, Lars, knowing that it was my kids' first Metallica show, as soon as the show began, he obviously knew where our seats were because he sent his assistant up to our seats to grab us and bring us down to the stage so Max could watch the show from behind the drums. Oh, wow. And we watched the wow. whole show from down, right down on the stage. You know, they were in the round. And, and, and the fact that he went out of his way and sent his assistant up specifically to our seats so Max could come down and see his first Metallica show like that. I mean, come on. Is, is that the fucking coolest guy ever? there's it reminds me of uh i saw a compilation somebody put up on youtube there was this kid i think in europe somewhere a young kid probably about the age your son was at that time who always found his way um right against kind of the little barricade where the band would be coming in and out of uh you know like down the hallway towards the stage and those amphitheaters and arenas and um the kid had done it enough times that james started to recognize him and there's this mm. compilation that like the kid's dad had filmed <laughs> every time wow. james kind of uh acknowledges him either with just something as simple as a look or you know stops and says something right. to him or and yeah i mean to be able to do that in a sea of uh because yeah on the one hand people listening to this might think well it's mike portnoy or, you know the guy's a legend in his own right and this and that but but yeah but also think about um how many peers and contemporaries and oh, yeah. uh, important I mean, they, people, quote unquote, are at any given Metallica show? Of that, course. You know. Every single show is filled with, with – actually, when I went down there, uh, watching the show with us was uh, the guy that played Saeed on Lost. I guess he was friends with Kirk because <laughs> they lived in Hawaii together. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was right when Lost was still on the air and still huge and everything. So, yeah, the, the, the point is, yeah, every Metallica show is filled with – with stars and VIPs and other musicians and actors, you know, every, everybody loves Metallica. Yeah. I've, so I've seen, I've seen Bradley Cooper like at two different incredible. Metallica shows in my life. <laughs> there you go. And exactly. he knows every song plays air guitar, sings along. Um, yeah. And actually uh, the funny thing is, is I, um, the second time I saw him at a Metallica show, he had Lady Gaga with him. Ooh. And um, this was, you know, uh, quite a while, a long time before the Grammy show. And, uh, and then I ended up seeing in an interview with Lars where he explained that he had actually met, Lady Gaga through Bradley Cooper after one of huh. their shows in L.A. <laughs> I was like, oh. Wow, that's great. I, I sort of saw that. <laughs> yeah. From afar. Um, well, dude, this is uh, th this this has been awesome. And uh, I, like I said, I knew you were a, a wish list person as soon as I kind of came up with this idea because I know well, that you're not you, only man. a fan, uh, but someone that had a lot of uh, unique and uh, significant and passionate things to say about them in general. Yeah, um, thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Uh, so 
let's talk about you while I've got you before you um, before we wrap up here. Um, oh, I want to talk about Metallica. Come on, I want to talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> what do we'll just we'll just real, real quick? What are you? Uh, what's coming up next for you? What do your next couple months look like? I'm pretty much devoted to uh, Sons of Apollo for this whole year. We we put out our debut album back in uh, October and um, started touring last month and basically resume in a few weeks and it's going to take us out till the, the end of October. Uh, we have the whole the whole calendar filled from now till the end of October. Uh, at that point, Jeff has to go back out to do TSO, so we'll take a break for the holidays. Uh, but that's pretty much my focus all year long. We're doing South America. We're doing North America. We're doing Europe. We're doing Japan. Uh, still a lot more dates still to come. So that's the focus for now. Uh, also, as you know, uh, a next uh, the, the next Metal Allegiance album is coming out later in the year. So uh, I think we're going to do a couple of festivals in Europe. We're, we're trying to squeeze them in, but the scheduling is always tough. It's got to be insane. Uh, <laughs> I can only I mean, imagine. We, we, we actually had uh, a lot of shows scheduled for this summer, and then uh, Testament ended up uh, extending the tour with Slayer uh, in the States. So it kind of took a lot of stuff off the calendar for Metal Allegiance because, you know, we want to do it with Alex. Uh, but in any case, we're going to get in a couple shows this summer, and uh, that album will be out later in the year. And it's a, a great, great, great album, great band. I mean, that's that's my metal outlet. You know, here I am talking about metal and all the metal bands that I love and hang out with. but Metal Allegiance is kind of my outlet for the metal side of what I do. And uh, I, I always love doing those shows with that band. And, and, you know, making these two albums has been awesome. Well, and I can say, uh, you know, I, I co-manage the band Killer Be Killed. And I can say the amount of scheduling effort that it's taken to get one record and one two-week tour of Australia <laughs> and over yeah. however many years. I can't imagine. I, can, I can't wrap my head around how Metal Allegiance has accomplished as much as it has. It's really hard. I mean, because obviously the core four, um, you know, Dave's always with Megadeth. Alex is always with Testament. I'm with the 87 different bands I'm with. So it's it's very complicated. It's it's hard. And you'd think that doing festivals would be a great solution, you know, because you could, you know, do these festivals with all these bands on mm -hmm. board. But it's just it's, it's very, very complicated. But uh, we're doing our best. And in any case, we have a great album that's on its way. And uh, I can't wait for people to hear it. I think there was a couple social media posts where you and Petrucci were hanging out. And I think for fans that in and of itself is just good to see that you guys are homies. That's the thing. I mean, there, there's no, um, there's no ulterior motive beyond uh, two guys that have been friends for 30 something years now. And, uh, you know, uh, we went through some rough times after I left the band and there was a lot of legal BS that just made shit you know, very uncomfortable and a lot more drama than was needed. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we got through that and it's great to be reconnected and be friends with him again. And um, that's really, that's, that's all there is to that picture. There's nothing to read into. There's no rumors to that need to be started. It's basically two friends, you know, our families, our wives and our kids all grew up together. Mm -hmm. Of course. Um, I mean, you shared uh, so many life defining moments together. I mean, how could you not have a relationship? You know? Exactly. I mean, we started in college. We went to each other's parents' funerals. We went to, you know, each other's weddings and our kids' birthday parties so there's just way too much history there 
to to let that go away because you know because I left the band. So yeah. uh, it's nice, you know, this last year or so, he and I have actually gotten together many, many times, and we just always kept it kind of private and didn't post about it. But he was over at my house for New Year's Eve uh, for a couple of days with his family. And it was, you know, we were approaching midnight, and it was like, hey, you know, you, you want to take a picture <laughs> you, and post you want, it? You want, to, you want to break the metal internet? <laughs> you, you want to break the, that's, well, that's, that's the funny joke is because that's exactly what our daughters said. Our, both of our daughters <laughs> were like, come on, Dad. Let's break the internet, break the internet. And sure enough, like that was the headline the next day. You know, Mike Portnoy breaks the internet with photo with John Petrucci. But it's oh, funny so because funny. that was the exact term that our daughters were using. That's what, And I didn't even realize that was the headline until you just said that. So that's Yeah, hilarious. it was very funny. <laughs> like, I guess that me, that makes me a millennial. <laughs> um, but it's, no, nothing there other than a message of friendship and love and give peace a chance and life is too short, carpe diem. And uh, we just wanted to put smiles on the faces of all the dream theater fans that, you know, went through all those years of drama with us and, uh, you know, just wanted people to know that we still love each other. That is so killer. And, 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 and you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Jason Newstead playing with Metallica at the rock and roll hall of fame. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love the fact that, that Dave Mustaine played with them at the 30th anniversary yep. shows and, you know, then they did the big four tour and you know, life is too short. I mean, I know, you know, when you leave a band and especially if it's an established band, it's, it's tough. There's a lot of drama and, you know, business bullshit that, that, that goes on with the lawyers and the record companies and the managers. And then there's obviously personal resentments and it sucks. It sucks. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to remember why you started playing in the first place. It was about the music and the friendship. And, uh, you know, every one of these bands, whether it be Metallica or Dream Theater or Anthrax, it, it, it all begins with a love for music and an enjoyment of like hanging out together and mm -hmm. having a good time. And then all the other stuff eventually, you know, gets in the way. All the business stuff starts to wear you down and, and creates a lot of drama and bitterness. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I love when I could see bands come back together and, and be friends. You know, there's cases where people have come back, you know, Dave, David Ellison coming back to Megadeth. Rob Halford or, you know, mm -hmm. Bruce Dickinson going Bruce, back to yeah. Peace Maiden or, uh, you know, Dave Lombardo going back to Slayer for all those years. I love when I when you see that. But even more important than that is just when you can see people being friends. Like, Absolutely. I love the fact that, like, Jason Newstead played all four of those anniversary shows with them. Mm -hmm. I think that that says so much. I saw just uh, last night uh, Matt uh, Barlow, I think, uh, from Iced Earth, got up and did a song with Iced Earth. And it's like, you know, you see him and the guy who replaced him six or seven years ago, right. you know, embracing and shaking. And it's just one song. It's like it doesn't have to mean anything. It's just right. here's a, here's some guys who spent a lot of time together and did a lot of cool things. And I, I think as, as an audience, as fans, we become invested in those relationships because we're sharing – and so much love and passion and emotion for the art that's being created that you want, you kind of, you champion for um, those people to, to be friends and to, yeah, <laughs> to mend absolutely. fences, you know? Yeah, absolutely. When I saw the picture of the two of you together, I was like, fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, those guys need he, I mean, to be friends, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, dude, thank you so much for making this happen. My pleasure, um, man. Yeah, is there anything else, uh, Metallica, we should talk about? I will say, uh, I, I, I still love that they're now going through the catalog and putting out these boxes. These boxes yeah. are so well done. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, they, they're they doing it right. I love that, you know, they're they're following, uh, you know, the Led Zeppelin, you know, kind of uh, 
blueprint. Uh, actually, the stuff is even b bigger and better than the Zeppelin boxes. But uh, I'm really glad they're doing that. And, you know, the, the 30th anniversary shows, just I just have so much respect for all of those things that they do. And I love that they still do it that way, you know, yeah. no matter how big they are. The deep dives into the archives that go into those things. And, uh, you know, they did a box set for Hardwired. Um, and then even just getting that and then knowing that they were doing the reissues and it was like, right. oh, is that what these are going to be? And then, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited as it goes forward too, because, you know, when they were doing the Kill em All one, that's like the least amount of stuff for them to find. You right. know, and it's like the later, you know, the Justice one, I think it's just going to be amazing because they're going to have so much shit to go through I'm, and put in there. I'm a little disappointed though that they're not going to do a remix for Justice. That's I, you what know, everybody I know they, wants. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know they defend why they did it that way for then, but what would be the harm in doing a remix, you know, just for the, the people that would love to hear a, a more balanced mix? Uh, I'm, I'm a little disappointed of that, but, uh, you know, I, I can't complain. I, yeah, why, they they, yeah, they put out so much stuff, you know? I mean, that, that that's that's the thing too is like, you know, you look at like the Star Wars movies and, and Lucas always kind of tweaking with them and fucking with them. It's like, well, the other, as long as every version's available, right. um, why not have alternative but everybody, versions? You know, you know, so many bands, so many bands do remixes for the box sets, you know, so it's, it's yeah. not that unusual. I don't think it would be anything that would be frowned upon. So hopefully, maybe they'll still change their, their mind. Who knows? <laughs> but Yeah. And, and I also often wonder about... Um, Sometimes I wonder in some of these legacy release situations if things aren't fucked with a little bit and it's just not mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I sometimes wonder what's gotten a little bit of a polish and it wasn't it wasn't right. marketed as a remix remaster, but it was right. fixed up a little. But I mean they they you know, the Beatles remixed Sgt. Pepper for the fiftieth anniversary yeah. box. And that wasn't that wasn't a remaster, that was a remix. So yeah. if you could re remix Sgt. Pepper, one of the most famous glorified album of all time then then you know you could do it with any album and it's not going to be off limits but you know what you can't complain because they are metallica is the most giving band i mean even the downloads the live downloads that you can go online and get any show uh you know i love uh the, speaking of well no pun intended i love the download show with, that lars didn't play drums on where it was dave lombardo yes. and Roy yes. Jordison. uh that's one of my favorite you know, live Metallica, Metallica recordings. You can just hear it in Joey's feet that he was like, this is the moment I've dreamed of since I was yeah. a child. <laughs> you know, just the yeah. determination and dedication. I love that they make all that available. You know, oh, that's, yeah. that's incredible. That's so, and so they've been awesome. Doing, and they've been so forward thinking and so ahead with the internet, which is, of course, the ultimate irony to people that don't really pay attention is that, you know, they've always, uh, you know, from the moment there was, a way to get anything out there they started doing it i mean i remember buying shows from their website for you know 9.99 for a two-hour set or whatever as mm -hmm. mp3s and like i mean way i mean way back i want to say like 2005 2006 definitely early yeah. days for that stuff yeah um, absolutely they certainly don't get enough credit for that and that and that, that, that whole argument um i often direct people to this 2000 episode of charlie rose that's chuck d from public enemy and lars debating napster and mm. all respect to chuck d i'm a public enemy fan um he's you know super brilliant guy everything he says is wrong and everything lars says came true yeah <laughs> it's really, that's true it's so it precious when you watch it but you know somehow lars is the bad guy in that if you look at it in retrospect you know whether you agreed with what they were what lars was saying and doing uh 
you know, he really called it. It was the, it's been the downfall of the entire industry, mm -hmm. not only uh, record sales, but record companies and everybody's suffering as a result. It, and and <laughs> it, you know, love or hate file sharing, whatever. The point is, there's no denying that it actually it brought the entire industry down. And uh, yeah, and to the, and to the people it. who at the time even were saying, well, you know, screw all the fat cats anyway, and the business has always been crooked, and everything right. should be free. Lars points back points it out way back in 2000. Um, no, 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 there are still fat cats who are making money from all of this. Like people are <laughs> investing millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into this, and you can. Rest assured, they're all trying to figure out a way to make money. Well, from look, it. look at Spotify. I mean, yeah, Spotify. I look at Kim.com, you yeah. know, free music. That guy was, yeah. you know, that guy was living in a compound based on free music. You know, where did that money come from? Very prescient. Well, sir, I'll let you get back to your evening. I appreciate you making this happen. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, man. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. And, uh, and feel free to come back anytime you want to talk about Metallica. Awesome. Thank you, man. Keep up with all of Mike's activities at MikePortnoy.com and at MikePortnoy on Twitter. And be sure to follow Speak and Destroy on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Please, if you haven't already, head over to iTunes or wherever you consume podcasts and leave Speak and Destroy a five-star rating and a nice little review, because those really, really help encourage more people to discover the podcast. Make sure to check out past episodes of Speak and Destroy, featuring great guests from bands like Avenged Sevenfold, Lamb of God, Megadeth, Pantera, Hailstorm, Judas Priest, Testament, Anti-Nowhere League, Diamond Head, and more. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Check out our sister show, No Prize from God, which features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. Guests have included folks from Killswitch Engage, Satyricon, Integrity, Alter Bridge, Demon Hunter, Under Oath, and more. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey.